you have your Bibles, go ahead and get those out. I'll give you a couple destinations here in just a few moments. But today we're going to continue looking in our forgiveness series. This is going to be like the second week of us looking at forgiving ourselves. We spent several weeks, uh, almost a couple months, talking about forgiving others. And we spent last week, and we're going to take this week and possibly the week following um, on forgiving ourselves. Because that's a, that's a really big battle that most all of us fight. Well, all of us fight that battle uh, at times. Most all of us fight it on a fairly continual basis of something that even if we get to the place that we can forgive others, it seems to be even more difficult and even more challenging for us to forgive ourselves. So today, we're going to be talking about the difference between conviction and accusation. So here's one of those weird tensions that we have to live in as a believer, as a Christ follower. When we are in Christ, we live in so many areas that can be classified as already, but not yet. Already, but not yet. Like we have already been made free in Jesus Christ but we're not yet walking in that fullness of freedom. We've already been washed of our sins, but we have not yet arrived at that place where we live sin-free. So we need to make sure that we're understanding the difference between conviction and accusation. Is there anyone in here besides me who struggles sometimes with forgiving yourself, especially when you repeat something that you know you shouldn't be doing? Anybody other than me? Good, good. It's kind of that Romans 7 thing that Paul talks about, right? It's like, you know, here's this great apostle Paul, uh, this disciple to the apostle to the Gentiles, writing all of basically the majority of our New Testament and influencing all of these early churches. And in Romans chapter 7, he says, For the very thing that I want to do, I find myself not doing. And the things that I don't want to do and know that I should not do, those are the things that I find myself doing. Yeah, I'm just, I, I hate to celebrate that, that Paul <laughs> struggled with that, but it's kind of a relief to me also to know that I'm not the only one. Like Because I find myself wanting to do this, but not doing it frequently enough because I find myself doing things I don't want to do or shouldn't be doing. And then I find myself doing these things that I shouldn't be doing and going, man, I really want to be doing that. And there, there's that constant battle. And then I find myself in a place of beating myself up because I'm over here when I know I need to be over there. But there's a difference today. And it's one of those things that for us to mature continually and grow in our relationship with Christ, we need to at least on a foundational level understand what the difference is between conviction and accusation. And I'm going to, I'll, I'll kind of use it interchangeably as true guilt and false guilt as well. 
So what I would like for you to walk away with from this message today is at least a baseline understanding of this concept that we have to be able to identify and dignify what is from God, which is conviction, which is true guilt. Then we also need to be able to detect and reject what is not of God, which is accusation or false guilt. So identify and dignify what comes from God, conviction, and reject, detect and reject what does not come from Him, which is accusation. One of the things, one of the biggest differences is conviction from God will always lead you to repentance. God's conviction via His Holy Spirit that dwells in you will always push you towards repentance. He won't make you repent, but true Holy Spirit conviction will always lead you to a decision point of repentance. And with repentance comes resolution. So his conviction leads us to repentance, which provides us resolution for our sins. Once we've sinned, we're convicted of it, it leads us to repenting or turning away. After we confess of that sin, we turn away from it, which is the resolution of sin, him forgiving us. Accusation, on the other hand, will always lead you into shame will always lead you into false guilt. And that's where it stops. True godly conviction will never stop at repentance because it provides a, a resolution for you. It will provide a forgiveness of sin in your life. But accusation, on the other hand, it can only lead you to shame. And it wants to keep you there. Now this, this may be a little bit too much of a vulnerability question, but how many of you in here are currently or have ever struggled with shame? Shame is not of God. Now there's moments that we feel ashamed of what we've done, and I don't think that's unhealthy. There are moments that we feel terrible about what we've done, and I don't think those moments are unhealthy. What becomes unhealthy is when we decide to plant our flag and stay there. Whenever we take up an identity of shame, whenever we take up an identity of guilt, whenever we take up this identity of never coming out of that. So let's talk a little bit about conviction first because it's true that we need to be continually convicted by god's holy spirit you say amen to that that that's that's part of our lives we need to constantly be convicted and i, I tried to get my wife to loan me some money this morning but she said i couldn't be trusted so just use this illustration in your head she didn't really say that she thinks it. she didn't say it 
our government has a like a task force people who are specifically trained in identifying counterfeit currency like that's what they do and, and really every government uh, to some degree since currency was developed has had people that were highly trained to detect whenever there's a counterfeit currency in circulation and as they're going through this rigorous training I mean like seriously rigorous and incredibly intense training and equipping to be able and be qualified to do this I found an interesting point in their training is that they do not put a counterfeit currency in front of them until almost the end of their training and that amazed me but I think that there's a really good reason for that because I believe the easiest way to spot something that's counterfeit is to know the real thing so well that it is like that spotting something that's counterfeit and I believe that's what God wants us to do in our lives as well when it comes to conviction accusation when it comes to guilt that comes from God over our sins or false guilt that comes from the enemy that wants to keep us in shame and bondage I believe that we need to study the real thing so closely that we automatically reject the counterfeit and that's done I would love to be able to do that for you all like in a 30 35 minute sermon but I can't do that I can highlight it for you but that's going to take you spending time in prayer it's going to take you spending time fellowshipping with God and that's going to take you time spending it in his word get to know the real thing so well and so intimately that you automatically detect when counterfeit has come but we all stand in need of being convicted not just once we all stand in need of being convicted for salvation but then as we continue our journey with Christ we need his Holy Spirit convicting us of these areas in our lives where we continually fall short so I want to look at a couple passages of Scripture go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 3 Romans chapter 3, I'm going to be reading verses 9 through 23, and in this there's going to be a section that you'll notice where he's pulling from the Psalms. Paul is pu pulls from the Psalms so frequently, and he's, he's pulling from multiple Psalms here. Verse 9 says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin." So Paul's laying it out here. Doesn't matter if you're a Jew, doesn't matter if you're a Greek, doesn't matter if you're a Gentile, doesn't matter what ethnicity, doesn't matter what nationality, doesn't matter what background you have, you are under sin. David spells that out to us in Psalms. Verse 10 says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Verse 20 is very important here. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear it to witness. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That includes me, and that includes every one of you in this room. Notice the, the power of that psalm that he quotes. No one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one does good. Yeah, that's pretty heavy, isn't it? And then there's this recognition of sin that comes from Romans chapter 3. And then we see passages like 1 John 1, 8 and 9, which says that if anyone says that they have no sin, then they've deceived themselves and the truth is not in them. But if they confess their sin, God is faithful and just to forgive them and cleanse them from all unrighteousness. So I wanted to throw those passages out there for an understanding of conviction this morning that each and every one of us in this room needs to be convicted on a regular basis by God's Holy Spirit. Amen? All of us fall short of the glory of God. And this is one of those already but not yet things when 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul tells us that if anyone be in Christ, they are a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away and all things are made new. If you are in Christ here this morning, guess what? You are already a new creation. But you're not yet walking in the fullness of it. And we have trouble with that, Right? Like, I mean, we have trouble, you know, getting there. And it's going to be really difficult for any of us to truly follow Christ in our lives if we have to understand everything. If we have to have all the answers for all the questions and the understanding of everything that happens, especially within our faith, if you have to have those things, you're really going to struggle with a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because we're in the already, because we have been. We are a new creation. It is through Jesus Christ we are a new creation. So your sin nature is no longer. You no longer have a sinful nature. But you still have the capability to sin. Already, but not yet. So... Listen, if, if I was not able to sin, it would be so much easier for me to detect which one was conviction and which one was accusation, because it would all be accusation at that point, right? 
But 1 John tells us that if anyone says that they are without sin, they're deceiving themselves and the truth is not in them. So it's critically important for us to understand that while we, in Christ, no longer have a sin nature, we still have the ability to sin. I prove that every day. Like 30 years ago, 31 now, 31 years ago, my nature was changed when I accepted Christ. So I was already a new creation, but 31 years later, I've not yet arrived there. So let's talk a little bit about accusation. Let's look at some of the passages because conviction comes from God. His Holy Spirit will convict you of your sin in your life. Every time. But there's also an enemy out there that works against you. Doesn't want you living in the freedom that Christ has for you. Number one, he doesn't want you living for Christ at all. But if he can't achieve that, then he does not want you walking in the freedom, in the liberty that Christ truly provides in your life. And he is cunning. He is a deceiver. He is a master manipulator. And what he does is that he takes things that are true and he twists them. He manipulates them. He uses them to deceive us. And what he does with accusations is he will take things that may seem to be true but present them in a way that is completely twisted and manipulated. That's why there is such a big struggle with the truth of God's Word being proclaimed and divided rightly. Because there's all kinds of voices out there that are taking the Scripture which are true and manipulating them and twisting them into saying what they want it to say or meaning what they want it to mean. So we have to be careful to understand that not everything that sounds like truth is actually God's truth. So let's look at Revelation 12:10 first. 10 through 11, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, "Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down." who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. And who accuses them day and night before God? Who's he talking about right there? He's talking about Satan. He's talking about the Satan, the devil. That's our enemy who is charge his most important job in your life is to accuse you is to bring accusation 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 
So that's what we're fighting. In Ephesians, the next passage that we have up here, Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authority, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I tell our staff frequently, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In the ministry and, and in life, in, in this life, it, it's everywhere too, but in the ministry, there are deep hurts and challenges that can come with, from the people who are closest to you. Within the church, within the family, and I'm quick to remind them, I'm quick to remind myself that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. It may look personal, it may seem personal, it may feel personal, they may even use your name. They may even talk about your family. They may even talk about the ones that, care, that you care for the most, but understand something that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And that's what I want to drive home to you this morning as well, that the battles that you're facing, whether it becomes a person, a situation, whatever it is, you wrestle not against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle. The enemy will use people in your life to come against you, to accuse you, to sidetrack you, to derail you in your relationship with God, but we wrestle not against flesh and blood. That's why it's so important for us to forgive others, because it's truly not personal. Now, they may have meant it personal, they may have wanted it to be personal, but in the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ, there has to be this discerning in our spirit, in our inward person that says, I am not fighting against them. Amen? I'm not fighting against them. It's a spiritual battle. So we are fighting a battle against our accuser. And this is a battle that he will not relent in. We're talking about an already defeated foe who has continued to fight for over 2,000 years. Satan was defeated at the cross of Calvary. Satan was defeated upon Jesus' resurrection. He was completely and totally defeated, rendered powerless. But yet, he has continued to fight for over 2,000 years. So if he's been that persistent and showed that much relentlessness in those 2,000 years plus, then we can't expect him to give up on our lives and say, oh, well, this one's too strong. So we need to begin to learn to identify some of his characteristics, some of his traits, some of these things that we can use to define him. The next slide is going to kind of take us through these as we begin to think about detecting his ways. So we're trying to identify and dignify God's guilt, conviction, and we're trying to detect and reject what's not of God. Accusation. So the first one is that he would really prefer that you believe that he didn't exist at all. Like Satan would really just have his way in your life if you didn't believe that he existed at all. That leads us to the next one. If you do believe, if you're going to insist on believing in him, then he wants to consume everything about your thoughts. 
He would love it if you didn't think he existed, then he could just function in your life and you not even know it. But then, if you're going to believe in him, he wants you to think that he is so powerful that you can't get away from thinking about him. Well, he said there has to be some kind of happy medium because in my experiences with churches, it's either everything's the devil or nothing's the devil. Like the nothing's the devil is that all of this is just a result of the world. It's just a fallen nature. There's no spiritual warfare that's happening whatsoever. And the one that believes everything is the devil is they hiccup and they start casting him out. You know, they, they stump their toe in the middle of the night. And of course, you know, the first thing we say is hallelujah anyhow, right? But then it's like, get thee behind me, Satan. You know, it's like, there's a happy medium here, guys. <laughs> but if you don't believe in him, he's great with that. But if you do, then he's going to want to consume everything about your thoughts. The next thing that we see is that he is a liar and he is an accuser. The book of John tells us this over and over and over again, that the devil is a liar. Period. Revelation, we saw that he is the one that's responsible for for being our accuser. The next one is that he is never more powerful than God. He's never more powerful than God. Matter of fact, you know, we call him, he's our enemy. I, I don't, I know what we mean when we say it, but I don't think he's God's enemy. And I really don't think he's God's enemy. Just because there's, there's nothing like, his biggest attack on God, which was Jesus on the cross, was defeated by Jesus being more powerful than death. Like, I don't think that God looks at him and goes, oh, I'm kind of worried about this situation. God is always, always going to be more powerful than Satan. No matter how big the mountain is in your life, no matter how difficult the times that you're living in or the situations that you're going through or the, the relational dynamic you're facing or the financial crisis that you're in, God is always going to be more powerful than Satan. And the key to settling into that is remembering that point before that, that he's a liar. Because he's going to tell you that what you're going through, you can't get through it. That that financial crisis you're in, there's no way out of. That relational situation, that there's no repairing it. That, that this strife that you find yourself in, this place in your family, he's going to try to convince you that there's no way that you're ever going to get over that mountain. But God said, if you just have faith the size of a mustard seed, then that mountain's going to move. And the last thing is we have to understand that he is, he is resistible. Satan is resistible. So how, how, do, we, how do we do this? What, what, are we, what are we talking about here? We have to learn to discover what is true guilt in our lives. And I think that we all have at least a baseline understanding that God wants us to repent from our sins. But he does not want us camping there. 
It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. He has come to not only give us life, but give it to us abundantly. So we, we know that we need, when we're convicted by God's Holy Spirit, we need to repent of our sins. And then we need to walk in Him in that freedom. But I think that sometimes, I don't think we struggle with that as much up here as understanding of releasing ourselves from that. Because, and I'm going to ask another vulnerable question in here. Think of the worst thing that you have ever done, whether it's in your past or if you're currently in the midst of it. Think of the worst thing that you've ever done, and then ask yourself this question, would I willingly forgive myself for that? And then let's take it a step further. Would I forgive someone else if they did that to me? See, that's the hanging point right there. That, that's, where we get, that's where we get stuck. It's because so, so many times, God is so good to us. And our minds, our fallible, imperfect minds, cannot fathom the fact that God loves us so much that he's forgiven us of that. Because we get hung up on it ourselves. And we can't forgive ourselves for it. Brothers and sisters, understand that whenever you are facing that situation that God has forgiven you, but you can't seem to, you have moved from the realm of true conviction and true guilt, and you're now living in shame. You are now living in accusation, something that your enemy is continually rolling over, rolling over, rolling over, rolling over in your life to keep you bound. Again, if he can't keep you from living for Jesus Christ, then he's going to want to weigh you down in your relationship as much as he possibly can. So if you're dealing with these areas in your life this morning where you just can't seem to find forgiveness, not from him, but from you, understand that you are in the midst of spiritual warfare. You are in the midst of a spiritual battle. And there's three R's. It's not a pirate movie. <laughs> R. Yeah. Hi, Rach. She loves it when I do that. But the three R's, some alliteration here of spiritual warfare, of resisting the enemy. There's three things to do. Recognize, refuse, and resist. Recognize, refuse, and resist. I want to give you some scripture on this. First, for recognize. 2 Corinthians. There we go. 2.11. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his devices. I dare say that you know your weak places as well as anybody else does, right? You know them better than anyone. We're not ignorant of his devices. We are not unaware of his attacks. We are not so um, just unaware of how he's going to hit us that we can't recognize it. Paul talks to the church at Corinth here. He's like, listen, you know how he attacks you. 
recognize when it's from God. God has given you his Holy Spirit, which helps you with spiritual discernment, which gives you strength, which gives you hope, which gives you comfort, which gives you peace, and it gives you a discernment of understanding, am I facing something that's from God, or am I fighting a spiritual battle that's coming from my enemy? And if you don't know, I'm going to give you a life hack. Right now, it's simple. If you don't know, ask Holy Spirit. If you're feeling convicted, if you're feeling shame, if you're feeling guilt, ask Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, is this coming from you? Because he was sent in part to lead us into all truth. God's given us his Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. Holy Spirit, is this of you? Because we're not ignorant. We know the way that our enemy attacks us. We know where we are susceptible, and we know where we are weak. Now resist. Let's look at another passage. I'm sorry, refuse. Let's look at another passage here, 2 Corinthians 10.5. We destroy arguments and every lofty lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. It's an interesting context of this passage because the context of what, we're, what they're talking about here is forgiving. Take every thought captive. Is this of God? Is what I'm thinking? Because I think that all of us could attest that the enemy of our souls will whisper thoughts in our ears. If you don't believe me, just open social media. Take every thought captive. Which means this process of, again, asking Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, is this thought of you? Does this thought draw me closer in my relationship with Jesus Christ? Does this thought give glory to God? Does this thought show forth the love, the goodness, the mercy, the kindness of Jesus Christ? Does this thought show forth the truth of his word? We have steps that we can take to take thoughts captive. Just because you have a thought doesn't mean it's right. Just because you have a thought doesn't mean that I want to know it. But what you must make sure of is that you're taking every thought captive. And again, that's going to be dependent on your relationship with God's Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. Holy Spirit is this thought from you. And the last R is to resist. We're going to the book of James 4, 7. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's an encouraging passage, isn't it? I mean, truly. To think that we have a way out of our temptation, of our accusations, of this false guilt, of this shame that we're feeling. It is a wonderful thought to know that we have a way out of it, that we can resist the devil and he'll flee. 
What we tend to forget about sometimes is the first part of this scripture. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. I want to close with this, so I'll ask the praise team if they would to come forward. You know, sometimes we do things, and, and there's a song out right now on Christian radio, and, and I do enjoy the song, but I, I can't help but identify a little bit of a problem that we have with it. It's talking about the power of the name of Jesus. And there is incredible power in the name of Jesus. Amen? And like that's, that's the source. But I think sometimes that we are convinced that just because we say the name Jesus, that everything's going to take care of itself, that every, we're going to, the resistance is going to leave, the enemy's going to flee, everything's going to be taken care of. It reminds me of the seven sons of Sceva story. You remember that? Or, or e even better, you know, the, the ones, when, whenever they're going out and they're talking to this uh, demon-possessed man, this, this person that's afflicted with an oppressive spirit, and they're trying to cast him out, and the spirit looks back at him and goes, because they said, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Paul. And they look, they're like, Jesus I know, Paul I'm aware of, you're the one I'm having an issue with, and refuses. See, the power is not only in us speaking the name of Jesus, the power is us actually having the relationship to back it up. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. Conviction? Are you facing conviction today? If so, repent. Begin walking in a greater freedom than you've ever known. But if you're facing accusation, something that you can't forgive yourself for, if it's something that is not truly coming from God's Holy Spirit, then begin to identify that. Understand that you're not wrestling against flesh and blood. Understand that those thoughts need to be taken captive. Understand that you are not ignorant of what's going on in your life, that you, you see where the enemy is attacking you, and then begin to resist him and walk in the freedom that Christ has intended for us.